still at large, unsolved British murders. Hello and welcome to this podcast series looking at unsolved British murders. Each episode will take a look at an individual murder or a series of killings that, despite the best efforts of the various constabularies involved, have, and for whatever reason, never been solved. In most cases, the perpetrator is probably still at large. Due to the nature of the topics covered, this programme is not suitable for children or people who are easily offended or of a fragile disposition. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Series 3, Episode 3 PC Keith Blakelock, October 6th, 1985 On Saturday, October the 5th, Jennifer Rush took the number one spot in the UK charts. The mix of adult-orientated rock, middle-of-the-road power ballad and pop song caught the imagination of a nation that had had a few shocks over the last six years since Margaret Thatcher came to power in October 1979. The social order of things in the UK had a number of growing problems. Unemployment, disenfranchisement from the political system, rising crime and rising tensions between the police and communities of black and other ethnic minorities due mainly to the widespread use of the SUS laws. This was legislation that allowed police to conduct stop and searches without needing the suspicion of a crime in progress. And despite the SUS laws officially being repealed in August 1981, the stop and searches continued. Several times during the 1980s, the tension erupted into riots and civil unrest, with Bristol, Liverpool, London, Birmingham and Leeds seeing very violent riots. The areas most affected were those communities where crime, unemployment and poverty were rife. The continued focus on arresting black and ethnic minorities for sometimes petty offences sparked angry confrontations between the police and angry young black men who felt that they were being victimised and harassed. A little under a month before October the 5th, on September the 9th, the arrest of a black man for a motoring offence triggered violent rioting in Handsworth, Birmingham. There were two very different views of the Handsworth riots. The right wing saw them as, quote, criminals going berserk after the police arrested local dope traders. Thugs of all creeds and colours had joined the fun. It was a yobs orgy, not a political protest, end quote. Whilst the left saw them as, quote, the never employed black underclass, interned in the workless gulags of Britain, had risen up against their oppressors. Birmingham was seeing violent resistance by blacks who believed they were being forced to live under a form of apartheid. End quote. During the clean-up following the 1985 Handsworth riots, sometimes called the Second Handsworth riot, the bodies of two Asian men, brothers Amrali and Kasamali Modina, were found in the burned-out post office they ran. A tragic and horrifying reality of the unrest. 
I should just clarify a few things before going on. I know this podcast is listened to widely around the world, and there are some sensitive issues in this one, and there are some particular phrases in relation to geographical descriptors of ethnicities. The US uses the term Asian to refer to people of primarily Chinese and Japanese origin. In the UK, the term Asian refers generally to people who originate from the countries of India and Pakistan. This could be confusing to some, but as the awful tale that follows is from England, British terms will be used throughout. There will also be some references to racially sensitive language from both sides of the political chasm. If this upsets you, stop listening now. It's all contextual and not the views of myself or the podcast at all, but they are key facts to understanding what happened. With that out of the way, it's back to the tragedy unfolding. On September the 28th in Brixton, South London, police entered the home of Dorothy Gross while searching for her son Michael in connection with robbery and firearms offences, of which he was a suspect. A police weapon was discharged and Mrs Gross was struck by the bullet. News of the shooting spread quickly and before long an angry crowd had gathered outside of Brixton police station. The protesters were under the impression the protesters were under the impression that Mrs Gross had died as a result of her injuries. Although in reality Mrs Gross had survived the initial shooting with the bullet paralyzing her from the waist down. The crowd, angry at the shooting and the general unfair and intimidatory behavior of the police, began to attack the police station by pelting it with any object they could lay their hands on. And before long, a full-scale riot was underway. It would be 48 hours before police regained control of Brixton. Millions of pounds worth of damage had been done, but that paled in comparison to the death of photojournalist David Hodge, who was covering the widespread looting. David was there simply to cover the action, not to get faces of the protesters to hand to the police. That's not what we do. Regardless of the fact that he was reporting from the front line of the race crisis that had engulfed the UK, someone dropped a concrete block on his head as he worked. David died of his injuries. It was a senseless death and a cowardly act. Tensions remained high and by the end of September there was a widespread rumour that there would be more rioting at various points across the UK. Rumour had it that there was due to be violence in Bermondsey, South London and at the Wood Green Shopping Centre in Wood Green, North London. These whispers and murmurs through the grapevine caused the police to step up, stop and searches. And following further disturbances in Toxteth, Liverpool, on October the 1st, police took to searching cars entering estates known to have large black and ethnic minority residents all over the country. One such estate was Broadwater Farm in Tottenham, North London. One of the cars stopped there was found to contain a petrol bomb. Four days later, Saturday October the 5th, 
police arrested a 24-year-old man called Floyd Jarrett on suspicion of being in a stolen car. And despite the fact that the grounds for his arrest were without any merit, the police decided to search the home of his mother Cynthia on the Broadwater farm for stolen goods. The inexplicable decision was made to use Floyd's own door key rather than knocking, or as they're more wont to do, kick the door down. Cynthia was at home when she heard people enter her home and was rightly alarmed to find her flat filled with white aggressive police officers. Police officers without a warrant to conduct the search. Being rightly angered by this invasion, Cynthia was loud and obstructive. Wouldn't you be? No warrant, no knock, just a house full of police pulling the place apart. At some point, and versions differ, Cynthia was either pushed, shoved or barged by one or more police officers and fell to the floor. Cynthia Jarrett died from heart failure very shortly afterwards. An officer attempted mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation, but to no avail. Once more, the news of the death of a mature mother, a black woman, spread like wildfire throughout the estate, and before long, people were gathering outside of Tottenham Police Station to protest the death and illegal search. The crowd remained into the night, and after members of the Jarrett family asked the crowd to disperse, four windows were broken at the police station. Anger stayed amongst the community on the Broadwater farm. Sunday the 6th of October would see the estate erupt into unprecedented violence. Before we go further forward, we need to go back to the creation of the Broadwater farm estate, or the farm as it is known locally. Once an area of agricultural land surrounded by suburban dwellings, the area of Broadwater Farm was considered too waterlogged and at too much risk of flooding from the River Moselle that flows through there. In the 1930s, the land was drained for allotments and recreation grounds. This was the situation until the late 1960s, when the policy of clearing the slums and providing social housing for the families being displaced came fully into action. The decision was taken to redevelop the area into high-density social housing and a design inspired by the pioneer of modern architecture, Charles-Edouard Generet, or Le Corbusier, was chosen to fulfil the required density of housing. A series of buildings comprising 1,063 flats, which was calculated to house between three and 4,000 people, were rapidly built using prefabricated concrete. Although the land had been drained in the 1930s, the underlying clay was too soft to carry the weight of the heavy concrete design, so the flats were built on thick concrete stilts that ran through the clay and sat on the bedrock. To avoid the possible annual flooding of the Moselle and keep maintenance and clear up following flooding to a minimum, the bottom floors of the towers were reserved for car parking, lifting the entire community skyward. To overcome the problems with a community divided by precipitous heights, 
Walkways linked the estate at various heights, allowing for the free passage of people from one block to another without ever touching the ground floor. The designers envisaged a community of people working in the same way that a small village would, with lanes and winding roads replaced with corridors and concrete walkways. Even though it was built in the late 1960s, the sunny future of a village in the sky smacks of the 1950s rebuilding fervour and ministry information films of an idyllic England that probably never existed. One innovative design feature was the construction of a special level area at the first floor. As the lowest storey of the buildings were reserved for parking and flooding, this left the estate needing a communal space, so an expanse of concrete perforated by large walled openings with views onto the tarmac below was created. This they called the deck level in a hopeful appeal to the inner cruise taker amongst the residents. To my unsophisticated ear, it sounds distastefully patronising, although deck is used to signify upper floors of buildings and some vehicles, so I might just be a bit reactionary with that. The 12 interconnected buildings were named after World War II aerodromes. Kenley, Hornchurch, Hawkinge, Lymphney, Manston, Martlesham, Northolt, Stapleford, Rochford, Debden, Croydon and Tangmere. Provisions were made in the designs for shops and a pub to increase a sense of community with the usual focal points of societal adhesion. There were grand ideals in the hearts of the designers, but as with every grand ideal, reality had other plans. Right from the start there were problems with the build quality. Leaks from the joints of the concrete panels caused damp and mould, with several flats being boarded up from the start. The local authority failed to maintain the project correctly. There were multiple problems with infestations of rodents and cockroaches. The wiring was substandard and created electrical faults all over the entire estate. By 1973, the brave new scheme of the vertical villages had become a dystopia of poorly lit, badly maintained buildings with the high-flying walkways becoming easy access and escape routes for criminals. Muggings and other assaults on the walkways became a regular occurrence, and the entire sense of community that had been hoped for had failed to materialise, with half of the people offered flats on the estate turning them down. Most of the residents applied for a transfer away. As the years went past, the situation got worse as successive councils and governments essentially ignored the problems. Then, with fewer people being committed to the estate, a proposal was put forward to demolish the project and start again. Considering that most of the residents wanted to move away, the residents complained and objected strongly, which is quite confusing. The headbanging between the council and residents became more and more confrontational. Eventually the plan to demolish was scrapped and a review of the estate was undertaken. It was then decided, in 1981, to begin redeveloping the site, but lack of funds caused it to be implemented badly. 
By the mid-1980s, it was synonymous with the phrase sink estate. It was branded a failure of the Le Corbusier designs to be people-friendly. Gangs, crime, unemployment and a sense of loss of community within the Broadwater Farm estate caused a spreading sense of disenfranchisement among residents, especially the majority of the young unemployed men, mostly from the black community. Another factor in the disunity on the estate was the Tenants' Association, an all-white group of residents, even though the demographics at the time were 50% white and 50% black. As with all of these committees on local community matters, the members were viewed by some in the community with suspicion because even at this small scale, they felt disenfranchised. The all-white panel did not, it seems, represent the voices of the black residents. This led to the creation of the Youth Association, a predominantly black community project. One of their big undertakings was challenging the special patrol group's actions on and around the estate that some felt were harassment. Their direct challenge to the police won them praise in some circles, but life is a million different shades of opinion and not everyone agreed. The Special Patrol Group was a unit of the Metropolitan Police. It was supposed to be for fighting serious public disorder disturbances and crimes beyond the capability of the local divisions. This mobile and rapid deployment team was, it seems, just being used to aggressively enforce the SUS laws. And because they were seen to have higher powers than normal officers, a culture of going beyond the legal bounds of policing soon developed. To give a little context to the SPG, or Special Patrol Group, in 1979, during a clash of protesters comprising the far-right National Front and the centre-left, although some might call them far-left, Anti-Nazi League, SPG were deployed in Southall, Middlesex. The Anti-Nazi League were protesting an election meeting of the National Front in the Town Hall. Among the ANL protesters was 33-year-old special needs teacher Blair Peach. Blair was part of the crowd, which was essentially a rolling brawl that an SPG unit attacked. During the ensuing struggles, Blair was knocked to the ground unconscious. He died the following day from the severe blunt force trauma he had received. The first coroner's report listed his cause of death as misadventure, which is, and this definition is from Wikipedia, a death by misadventure as recorded by coroners and on death certificates and associated documents is one that is primarily attributed to an accident that occurred due to a dangerous risk that was taken voluntarily, end quote. Essentially, they said that if Blair hadn't been there, he wouldn't have died. This did not sit well with his girlfriend Celia Stubbs, who then campaigned for a full public inquiry into his death. Eventually, in 2010, after a lengthy battle with authorities, the CAS report, a document produced by a special team of detectives, concluded that Blair Peach was, quote, almost certainly 
unquote, killed by one of six SPG officers. During the investigation, illegal weapons were found in the possession of SPG officers, including a baseball bat, weighted coshes, iron bars, and even knives. During the initial investigation into Blair's death, when police went to examine the uniforms that had been worn, they found they had all been dry cleaned, and then the officers kept lying to investigators, and one of them turned out to be a Nazi. The injuries Blair had sustained were not from police batons or shields, but by a heavy metallic object, most likely an iron bar. The CAS report went on to further narrow down the suspects to an officer who was labelled as Officer E. Officer E has never been charged with any offence. That gives a pretty clear indication of how rotten the SPG had become. Even though Blair's murder prompted some changes and a tightening of what weapons they could carry, the SPG was still heavy-handed, which only fueled the tensions that were growing at a rapid rate on the Broadwater Farm estate. The situation on the estate was further escalated when Haringey Council gave the Tenants Association an empty shop to use as a sort of office slash drop-in centre and the council also gave them some minor authority over small local problems. Naturally, the Youth Association was angered by what to them seemed as preferential treatment given to the all-white tenants group. In reply, they opened their own drop-in centre, advice centre, youth club and estate watchdog. The community action, meant to draw the people together, only served to cause a rift. All was not bad news, however, as the Youth Association and Tenants Association both placed enough continued pressure on the council to force them to act. They opened a Tenants Empowerment Agency called the Priority Estates Project to coordinate the complaints of the residents and vitally this time they included tenants from all sides of the estate as part of the project. Things seemed to be improving. The government's Minister of Inner Cities, Sir George Young, MP for North West Hampshire, a primarily rural constituency, cited the successes of the many projects which had been started to bridge the ethnic divides within the estate and to secure central government funding for further improvements. Such was the success of the regeneration projects that Princess Diana, the Princess of Wales, made an official visit to see the improvements and commend the progress they had made. It was good PR. A failed estate had, with direct action initiatives from the two sets of residents, begun to regenerate into a functioning community. It was, alas, merely superficial, as the walkways were still dangerous places prone to exploitation by criminals, gangs and other ne'er-do-wells. Tensions between the white community and the black community were running high, with distrust between the two encompassing the mostly white police force, most of whom were not from the Tottenham area. Now we have somewhat of a thumbnail understanding of the history of the estate and problems within the site, we can return to the dreadful events of the 6th of October.
The protest outside of Tottenham Police Station had been a fairly rowdy and noisy affair, with several of the station's windows being smashed. The crowd had been there overnight and ebbed and flowed as the hours had passed. Confrontations began to occur towards the middle of the afternoon. Then two officers were attacked by the crowd. They were seriously injured by gunshot wounds. Three journalists covering the protest were also subject to firearm violence and needed to be taken to the nearby North Middlesex Hospital. The mood had changed drastically and for the worse. Unrest began to escalate on the estate. And at a quarter to seven that evening, a police van answering a 999 call to Broadwater Farm was surrounded and attacked. Reinforcements were called to control the angry mob on the estate. Very quickly, the mob on the estate took up a position on the deck area and barricaded themselves in. Those members of the emergency services that were on the spacious deck area were told to withdraw. For all the grand ideals of the designers, by using features of traditional community complexes and drawing their inspiration from villages and towering edifices of stone, they overlooked the natural comparison with those bastions of early English communities, the castle. They had, unwittingly, built a castle complex complete with ramparts. The Broadwater Farm Riot began as a Middle Ages siege. As police began to flood the area, with other emergency services in support roles, 999 calls were coming in from all over the estate. At half past nine that evening, a news agent in the Tangmere block was set alight. A news agent, for those not familiar with the British idiom, is a small shop that sells a few bits and bobs of stationery and other consumables, but the majority of their trade is in newspapers and tobacco. Although this fire is also reported to have been in a supermarket on the Tangmere block. It could well be the same shop as perceptions of what constitutes a large shop and a small supermarket are often blurred. A fire engine was sent in to deal with the blaze. It was supported by the police. Accompanying the fire service was Serial 502, a unit of the Metropolitan Police. This was supposed to be a specialised unit of regular officers comprising 11 constables and one sergeant. They would provide a thin blue line between the rioters and the fire crew. The police designation of Serial 502 came from the term Shield Serial and an identifying number. They were sent into the riot with a mixture of long riot shields, short round shields, batons and handcuffs. Their heads were protected by NATO helmets and they were wearing fire-resistant overalls, but as yet the police were not issued with stab vests. That was all they carried with them. Serial 502 was made up of officers assigned to Wood Green and Hornsey police stations, but they originated from across London and the UK. There were three Londoners, three Scots and officers from Gloucestershire, Cumbria, Yorkshire, Sunderland and Merseyside. Of the serial of 12 officers, only one was a black Londoner. Serial 502 were Maxwell Roberts, Ricky Pandya, Keith Blakelock, 
Miles Barton, Alan Tappy, Robin Clark, Stephen Martin, Kenneth Gordon Milne, Richard Coombs, Michael Shepherd, and Martin Howells. This wasn't a squad of officers trained in the protection of emergency crews, riot procedures, or even shield use and techniques. Well, not beyond basic training at Hendon at least. One was a traffic officer, most were regular beat patrol bobbies. Three, Martin, Roberts and Shepherd, were probationers. That is, they were into the last two years of their training. The probationary period is for those who made it through the training at Hendon and had been assigned to a police station where they would get to meet the community and begin becoming fully-fledged police officers. For all of the officers, this was the first time that they had ever worked together as a team. It was a baptism of fire. At 9.30, Sergeant David Pengelly led his unit into Tangmere. Their objective was to get the firefighters to the shop and provide a safer environment for them to do their job. The fire brigade had been in attendance earlier on, but had been pushed back by the crowds throwing rocks and any other debris that they could lay their hands on. So when they returned with Serial 502, the police were there to escort them onto the deck area of the Tangmere block. One member of Serial 502, PC Richard Coombs, saw that several people were calling out to them that the shop was on fire. He said later, quote, the visibility was good and we saw a group of men on a high balcony of the Tangmere block. They shouted at us that the supermarket on the mezzanine floor of their block was on fire. This, to me, smelled like a trap. End quote. PC Coombs also remembers hearing the superintendent over the radio saying, quote, Whatever you do, don't go on to the farm. End quote. Given that there was real risk to the residents who were in Tanmere Block and from the burning shop, their decision to enter was heroic. But that's what these men and women do every single day. They put others first. Their only point of access was a sealed stairway. Essentially, a narrow concrete passage lacking any forgiveness. It was as they were almost to the deck area when dozens of rioters appeared, blocking their way. Sergeant Pengelly tried explaining that they were there only to assist the firemen and then they would leave. It didn't have the desired effect. Instead, concrete paving slabs and petrol bombs were thrown. By some stroke of luck, the petrol bombs hadn't ignited. The crowd of rioters was pressing in beating the shields with machetes, kitchen knives, axes and even a sword. Someone had fixed a kitchen knife set at 90 degrees on a long pole. This was to allow them to reach beyond the shields and stab the police officers. Then, according to PC Coombs, someone appeared with a flamethrower and the chant of burn the bacon came from the mob. The petrol bombs were never meant to go off. They were for delivering petrol onto the police and firemen. Thankfully, the flamethrower failed to ignite. 
the men now had the problem of getting to the stairwell and off the estate. More and more rioters arrived all the time. Whistles were blown and handbells rung from within the rioters. This, it seems, was a pre-agreed signal for as soon as the whistle sounded, the mob attacked the riot shields of the police with machetes and a hail of bricks, bottles and metalwork. Pengeli wisely ordered a retreat and the mob pressed down upon them. More rioters appeared from the passages and alleyways that fed the mezzanine where the shop was located. Their retreat was a hazardous affair as the stairwell had hoses that the fire brigade had laid out snaking their way up the stairs. The stairwell was unlit and the hoses, once flat when empty, were now engorged with water, making them as hard as concrete and very dangerous to negotiate. The mob was now chanting, kill the pigs, kill the pigs, kill them, kill, kill, as they poured into the stairwell after the retreating police and fire crew. The heavy plastic shields were heavily scratched from wear, as were the visors on the police helmets. This rendered them almost totally blind. At the bottom of the stairs, they were met by more rioters armed with machetes, slabs and petrol bombs. Most of the rioters wore masks or crash helmets. Undaunted, the police and firemen made their way to the bottom and began to escape to an area of open grassland near to the building. As they ran, Divisional Fire Officer Trevor Stratford witnessed one of Serial 502, PC Keith Blakelock, stumble. Stratford would later say, quote, he just stumbled and went down, and they were upon him. It was just mob hysteria. There were about 50 people on him. Originally from Sunderland, Keith had joined the police force in 1980 first serving in a response team in Hornsey Police Station, before becoming a regular beat officer in Muswell Hill, North London. Keith was married with three sons. That morning, PC Keith Blakelock had gone to work like so many other mornings. PC Richard Coombs gave an account of seeing PC Blakelock go down. Quote, 30 masked men literally dropped onto the struggling body, hacking at it with their knives like a flock of murderous birds in a feeding frenzy, hacking and jabbing." End quote. Without a thought for himself, Coombs ran back to Keith and was met by a large crowd of youths. They knocked him to the ground by hitting him in the face with an iron bar, pulled off his visor and slashed at his face slitting his neck and right cheek deeply. He lost consciousness when he was hit in the face with a machete that shattered his jaw. Coombs had not been alone when he returned to Keith. Alongside him was Constable Michael Shepherd. PC Shepherd was hit with an iron spike and fell next to PC Coombs. Shepherd, although injured, pulled his shield up over the pair of them to ward off the onslaught of rage directed at them. At this point, Serial 502 had been dispersed into confusion. Some officers, like Sergeant Pengelly, found themselves being chased by a mob on his own, 
Despite this, he turned and, shouting aggressively, ran back to render assistance. He described it later, quote, After covering a distance of about 15 yards, I hit the nearest of them with my truncheon on the head. He was about 40 to 50 years, with short curly black hair going grey. As he fell away to my right, I hit another coloured person to my left, and the group broke up and ran off. I could see it was a police officer lying motionless on the ground by a fire hydrant coupling. Defending with my shield, I tried to drag him away, shouting for assistance. I was facing youths and stumbled over the ground, I believe having been hit in the right knee by a stone or brick. I regained my footing quickly as I saw someone with a sword or machete, amongst others, running about. A coloured youth threw a rock which hit me full on the visor of my helmet, partly stunning me. I continued retreating, facing off the youths following me. I could not see any of my officers and I believed there was one left behind. I was trying to check the ground for bodies. The coloured youth then caught hold of my truncheon and I tried to pull it away from him without success. To effect escape, I released the thong from my hand and he ran off." End quote. The policeman continued to be assaulted by the crowd and the rain of objects kept falling, as did the fist and feet, knives and metal bars. Seeing colleagues on the floor prompted Divisional Fire Officer Trevor Stratford and Constable Maxwell Roberts to return to the prone figures. When they arrived at the point where Keith was laying, they were still under heavy assault from the rioters all around them. Maxwell Roberts was just 19 at the time and he failed to recognise Keith Blakelock due to the injuries to his face and the amount of blood covering him. He later gave testimony, quote, I tried to help him up. I grabbed hold of his clothing, but it came apart in my hands. I shouted at him, Get up and run! Bloody run! I helped him to his knees. He was still alive at this point. He tried to take two or three strides and just collapsed. I tried to help him to his feet again, but he was a dead weight. End quote. Robert suffered stab wounds during the rescue of Keith Blakelock. Trevor Stratford suffered spinal injuries following chunks of concrete and bricks being thrown at his back. Despite this, and with the assistance of Sergeant Pengelly, the three of them carried, dragged and pulled Keith up the short grass bank and to the relative safety of the road. It was only when they laid Keith on the ground that they recognised him. Maxwell Roberts said, quote, It was Keith, because I saw his moustache. I saw a bread knife sticking in his neck. End quote. The assistance that Sergeant Pengali gave was extraordinary. Trevor Stratford said in 2010, quote, Dave Pengali kept a rear guard barrier between us and the rioters, standing in the middle of it all with just a shield and a truncheon, trying to fend them off, which is an image I'll never forget. End quote. Trevor Stratford was joined by fireman Raymond Barrington in administering first aid to Keith Blakelock. They tore off some of his clothes and began to check for vital signs. 
After placing his ear to Keith's mouth and nose, he found he wasn't breathing. He began pumping Keith's chest in a desperate attempt to revive him until the ambulance arrived. He managed to get Keith breathing again and was able to take stock of the injuries PC Blakelock had been dealt. A long slash wound ran from Keith's mouth to his shoulder, the back of his shoulder, and there were numerous other facial injuries. The knife in the back of Keith's neck was protruding from just below one ear. Although injured himself, Stratford continued to treat PC Blakelock in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. PC Coombs, who had been viciously attacked with bladed weapons, was rushed to hospital in a fire engine. Two of the crew, David Quay and James Ryan, administered treatment en route. As Keith was on the way to the hospital, police reinforcements arrived to rescue Serial 502, but by that stage the surviving members had regrouped or been transferred to hospital. PC Keith Blakelock was pronounced dead on arrival. The post-mortem results uncovered the utter horror that PC Blakelock had suffered. There were five stab wounds to his face, five to his sides, including his armpits, that had penetrated his lungs. There were abrasions consistent with stamping all over his body. A lot of his injuries were consistent with defensive wounds, where Keith had tried to fend off the rain of hate. Several fingers were missing as a result. His back had been stabbed repeatedly with varying depths of penetration and types of knife. In total, there were 54 holes in Keith's overalls. There were 40 stabbing or slash wounds, but by far the most dreadful injury was the one that ran from Keith's face to around his back. It had been inflicted with a long, heavy blade either a sword or a machete, and it had crushed his jaw. It had the appearance of an attempt to decapitate. It had not been a single blow dealt with violent force, but many separate blows to the same region. PC Keith Blakelock had become the third policeman since the formation of the force in 1829 to die at the hands of rioters on the mainland of the UK. His NATO helmet has never been recovered and I suspect that it is being kept somewhere as a gruesome trophy of the night. As the smoke cleared and the dust settled on the Broadwater Farm estate, the fallout began. Next time on still at large. Arrests, charges, convictions, appeals and quashing. Still at large 
is an independent true crime podcast. It is written, presented and edited by me, Desmond J. Brambley. If you would like to help support the show, please visit our Patreon page by visiting patreon.com slash podcast, or you can use the donate button on our website. You can join in with the conversations about the show on our Facebook page by visiting Facebook slash podcast. The theme tune is by Duke Deck and online music AI at dukedeck.com. Still at Large is a tiny yellow dinosaur media production. <laughs>